Hello and welcome to a festive season of the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and on the run-up to Christmas, in an Advent podcast calendar of surprises, we'll release episodes on a Monday, Wednesday and Friday so that I can talk to a mixture of early career professionals and those a few steps ahead on their career journeys. You'll discover that we can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. And I think that that's one of the most powerful lessons in life is is actually, don't ask the question, can we do it? Is ask the question, how can we do it? Today, I'm talking to Lorna Fitzsimons, who is board member at Greater Manchester Local Enterprise Partnership and CEO and co-founder at The Pipeline Limited, an organisation that works to develop leaders and female talent to add value to business. Lorna is also a board member of a number of organisations, including the UK Fashion and Textile Association, and she lives in Rochdale. Welcome, Lorna, and thank you for joining me. It's lovely to see you. Pleasure. So, um, Lorna, tell me about the younger you. What were you like at school? Where did you grow up? What were you interested in as a youngster? I live five minutes away from where I grew up, in the village I grew up. My son went to the schools I went to, and yet I was the child that everybody thought that they would never see again because, you know, I couldn't wait to leave the village. So that's a bit of an irony. I was excruciatingly shy. To paint a picture for those of you, I've got uh, bright ginger hair, I've got lots of freckles, I've worn glasses since I was a baby, and therefore uh, my childhood was coloured by bullying, uh, but also a rich tapestry of great individuals, um, both, you know, teachers and family, uh, that sort of created me as I am now. And... Um, even then, I didn't like being told what I could do. Uh, so I was very contrarian. You told me to do something, I go and do the opposite. And my parents made the mistake of telling me that they didn't think there were any jobs in art because they'd both studied art. And it was at the time in the 70s where things were very, very tough. And so I decided that I would prove them wrong. And so I dedicated myself to... Uh, being brilliant at art and uh, you know I only got two O levels one in art and one in music but I got grade A in both and then I decided that one could only have one real passion and therefore my passion was going to be art and I went off to art college. Wow so it sounds like on the one hand you had a very sort of strong will or a determination to do what you wanted to do but at the same time you were as you said, you were shy and you were bullied, which is quite an interesting sort of contrast, I guess. Human beings are rich in contradiction. I think the best thing is that childhood nursery rhyme, which is one morning in the dead of night, two men got up to fight. Back to back, they faced each other, drew their swords and shot each other. And that's the wonderful nature, the contradictory nature of human beings. I'm dyslexic. My father was dyslexic, my twin sister wasn't, and my brother, younger brother wasn't. He's a chemical engineer, she's a lawyer and a linguist, and I was an artist. Uh, so I always felt as though I was the outsider, the odd one out, that it is our difference that makes us all stronger. 
that it took me a long time to realise my dyslexia was something special rather than something that made me broken. You then left school and you went to follow your passion of art and design at Loughborough. When I got accepted to Loughborough, they said that, you know, people will find this shocking now, but back in the day, they said my disability was my own problem and I had to deal with it. And they were accepting me despite my dyslexia. And therefore I I had to cope with it on my own. That's, that was a specific requirement of my entry that they didn't take responsibility for. And I was desperate to get away from home. I felt misunderstood. Uh, you know, I uh, wanted my freedom. I was headstrong. You know, uh, you know, you could have argued that Manchester had a better course. I mean, it didn't look as always been in the top three in terms of art provision in the country. So your time at the art college, as well as focusing on art and design, you started getting involved in the National Union of Students, the NUS. You were vice president and then president. Tell us a little bit about that and what motivated your involvement there and how you found that part of your your time. Well, I was a dyslexic art student. So the idea that I became a national education policy expert was just quite frankly ridiculous. At the time I went to art college, the then government, sort of Margaret Thatcher and then John Major, decided that freestanding art colleges were not economically viable institutes. They thought that artists didn't get jobs. And I was motivated to think I'm a dyslexic art student. I wouldn't have had a choice getting out of my village if I hadn't been good at art and been able to go to art college. I have a responsibility to keep that option open for other people like me. And it just motivated me. And I didn't read a book until I was 13. And I only read a Mills and Boone book because my twin sister realised that that was the best way to get a sort of pubescent girl to read, you know, good old fashioned love and romance and all that stuff. Anyway, but I've never read anything really serious. And I started embracing national government education policy. And I became the country's single biggest expert in it. And I just, because I was motivated by my responsibility to do something about it, and we basically, you'd get what was called the National Advisory Board, then the big education body of the day, and people coming to our college. And in the end, they'd have to have an argument with me. I was a student representative on the governing body. I eventually then got elected to be the Education and Welfare Officer at the combined, very unique combined student union at Loughborough that represented the FE College, the Art College and the University. And basically, I waged a campaign for five years with the trade unions and the lecturers to stop us being merged with Leicester Polytechnic down the road. And we were successful. And as a consequence of that, I got heavily involved nationally in the National Union of Students. But I was never... I was never sort of actively involved in national labour politics or national labour student politics. And they headhunted me. They wanted me for their ticket. And ironically, the first big election that they put me up for, I lost because I froze on the stage. I had Derek Draper on one side, who some people might know. He's sadly gravely ill at the moment uh, in hospital with COVID, who used to be Peter Mandelson's advisor. And uh, Tim Farron, who is uh, the ex-president and leader of the Liberal Democrats on the other side. And they were like two stand-up comedians. And I froze. 
you know so this is the shyness coming out which is i'm brilliant at this i'm brilliant at you know forming interpersonal relationships i look you know my hobby is collecting people but put me on a stage oh my god it was like sticking pins in my eyes i froze i froze and as people say but you don't really realize it's your mistakes it's your failures that make you it's not your successes really So when I went on eventually to become president of the National Union of Students, the government then tried to shut us down as the student representation in Britain. We actually ran a campaign. We defeated them in the House of Lords. And my my sort of the pinnacle of my sort of student career was when we'd run a campaign that eventually got the, the acting Secretary of State, then Baroness Blatch, to basically invite me to a meeting. And so I took the General Secretary, so the is basically the head of the civil service, for want of a better word, but in student union circles, to a meeting. And there were literally all the ministerial team and then all the advisors behind it. There must have been about 20 people in the room and me and Doug. And we'd been asked privately to fax our terms to them. So sheet of A, I think there was 15 points on it, a sheet of A4, fax to them. Literally a piece of paper was pushed across the table And the only thing that changed was the letter heading. And I was asked whether we would accept these terms and they realised we had to go away and consult. And all me and Doug did was go to the pub. (laughs) And it was a huge government defeat and they accepted all our terms and nobody knew about it. So, I mean, you were demonstrating clear leadership skills, vision, commitment, your communication, I mean, I saw you, you were given a Young Communicator Award in 1995, having once frozen on stage. And I guess that involves not just public speaking, but communicating generally clearly with people who are busy and got all sorts of things going on. And importantly, you built trust with the people you were dealing with, both the, the, the others in the NUS that you were leading and also those in those in parliament who you were going to see and deal with i wasn't created i was made by lots of different people who shared their wisdom nus is the what we would call the private school tie you know the old school tie uh, of uh, of the non-rich because nus has trained more people from working class backgrounds to lead Uh, in all various aspects of British life than any other single institution. It is, apart from Oxford and Eton, it is the Oxford and Eton of the non-privileged. And it is a, a simply amazing institution that most people won't really realise the value of. Mm. Oh, that's fascinating. So just to move the story on then, you moved to a subsidiary of, of Saatchi for some time, working with various clients, including my old organisation, UKAEA and Procter & Gamble and others, before you were elected to be a Member of Parliament for Rochdale. Tell us a little bit about that period in your life. And again, what, you were, what were you learning about yourself, your passions and what you were good at that led you uh, into into Parliament in in ninety seven. I created my own start in terms of what I did at Loughborough, but that then got me noticed, and somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, "We want you to be our candidate in terms of NUS." 
And what I did at NUS and what we did as a team, but also what I was accredited with doing and adding, you know, as a team, got me then tapped on the shoulder by a contact I had at Sarches. And that got me the highest paying job of any leaving president of the National Union, which I was quite proud of, because I'm not an Oxbridge first. I'm, you know, a dyslexic art student who didn't quite pass her degree because she couldn't submit her dissertation because they couldn't deal with her disability. So I went to Sarches and I was at Sarches for three years. And I want I, the reason I went to Sarches, apart from the fact that, you know, I think the listeners who come from NOUT, as you would say, from, from abject food and energy policy uh, poverty, realised that there is one driving thing from, I think, I think it was the poverty and the dyslexia that drove me, which is there's no safety net for people like me. There's no safety net. If I wasn't paying the bills, nobody was paying the bills. And I couldn't afford to be a failure. I absolutely cannot still afford to be a failure. I also had another drive, which was that I wanted to prove that it was that the skills that I had used and was taught in NUS were applicable in the corporate world. And where best to go other than the company that was run by the Sarchi brothers at the time. I am a, a, I am, my absolute natural DNA is influence. You what you see something that needs to be changed or achieved, you go about doing it. Life matters. And therefore, you don't walk on by, if not me, who? And if not now, when? And no isn't an option, you know? Or as my wonderful business partner, Margaret Madonna says, make every day count. And people don't understand politics. They think, ooh, politics. Every, you know, wherever you go, where, in every organisation on God's earth, there are politics because where there are people, there are politics. I work for tobacco as a devil's advocate. I work for nuclear. I work for oil and gas. I work for Halliburton, Brown and Root as they were over here. I worked for brilliant companies like Procter & Gamble, and that's where I won my award. I suppose I always accredit my talent as being not quite clever enough to realise things can't be done. And therefore, you know, you work out how to do them. And it is, it's, it's a really powerful gift I have worked out, you know, because there are a lot of cleverness is a big inertia in people sometimes because they've read so many things that tell them the law of this says that that can't be done. And if I understood the law of loads of things, I would have never achieved what I've achieved. I've, I've just gone and done it because you find a way to do stuff. And I think that that's one of the most powerful lessons in life is, is actually don't ask the question, can we do it? Is ask the question, how can we do it? Yes. And, and do you think that's your passion and, and almost sort of force of personality? Or is it also your ability to garner trust with those in positions of influence who can, working together, make a change? You know, everything's a recipe, isn't it? So there's no one thing. It's the balance of what you have. So how much salt and pepper, how much sweet and sour. A good balanced dish has four main ingredients that totally balance each other. And you have to be aware of that because my power can also be my weakness because I can be too overpowering. And once I've decided where we're going, am I a good listener? Am I, do I listen enough? But I do know that you determine your own fate. If you say that something you're going to do something or something can be done, you're nine times more likely to achieve it. You need a balance of the people that can deal with events, dear boy, events, and people who deal with a steady state in there together because we're getting more and more events 
that knock us for six. And we have to be more agile, more adaptable. That's the social connectivity. And that's where my passion about diversity comes in as well. So you formed Pipeline Limited. Tell us a little bit about that and what you've been able to achieve. Are there drumbeats of success that you can look back on and think, you know, that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't been there and done that. And, and there might be ways that people can engage with, with Pipeline. So eight years ago now, I was coming to the end of my tenure as chief executive of Bicom. I'd been there for five, nearly six years. It was clear they didn't want to grow and I can only grow or deal with distress. I was brought into the organisation during distress. So it was a case of I recruited my successor. I did a five year plan. And what next for me? And at the same time, I was talking to somebody who I'd worked with sort of tangentially, Margaret McDonough, Baroness McDonough, who had been a general secretary of the Labour Party while I was a Labour member of Parliament. And we had both, she'd seen an article in the uh, Times by Alice Thompson in 2012 that basically said in the last 10 years, we'd lost 40% of female execs. And the big question is why? And it was the same time as Mervyn Davis, Lord Davis and Vince Cable, who was then the business secretary, were setting up the challenge to corporate Britain of having more female board members. So uh, the non-executives, not the executives that run the company, but the non-executives. And Margaret and I looked at each other and said, we do love them both dearly. They are, uh, we're glad we're focusing on gender, but they're focusing on the wrong bit. They should be focusing on the executive committees, you know, the people who actually run the company, not the non-executives that sort of oversee as it were and Margaret initially thought that it would be good for me and a a friend of hers to set up but in the end Margaret and I ended up setting it up we never dreamed that eight years later we'd be you know one of the if not the leading organization company in the country and and globally dealing with this but we've got clients all over the world and what we do is this is for us this is hard-nosed economics Um, Science tells us now that the best performing organisations in the world have more women, a balance of men and women running them at the top. And those that don't are not performing as well. And so the IMF did a piece of research across the globe with two million companies, proved that categorically. Um, McKinsey have done 10 years of deep dive global research. We do a count of the FTSE every single year. Every single piece of research continues to reaffirm that if you have a balance of men and women running your company, you outperform those companies that are just governed by all men. And so, I mean, this is a really big, high profile area for the nuclear industry at the moment. And women and nuclear were formed a few years ago. And in the uh, nuclear industrial strategy, there are targets around the the balance and, and moving the dial in the right direction. What would be your advice to perhaps a graduate or apprentice who's come into the nuclear industry, uh, perhaps a female, um, around how they can play their part and also perhaps their line managers and those that are helping to shape their career can play their part in that journey in the pipeline? Nobody gets to the top without a sponsor. I didn't, Barack Obama didn't, Tony Blair didn't. You know, the only person who gets to the top without a sponsor is a monarch, quite frankly. And a sponsor is is somebody who advocates for you when you're not in the room. That is two positions or more, more senior than you, or not even in your organisation. 
our work, our research shows that three quarters of men in organisations have them and only 20% of women in organisations have them. And it's the single, one of the single biggest determinants as whether you'd get the top. So I'd say to the person, work out who, who's tapped you on the shoulder. Think of it this way. Who's tapped you on the shoulder and said, you should go for that job. I think you should do this. I'm going to nominate you to do that. That person's your sponsor. Right. OK. And think about who you would like to be your sponsor. Who do you admire? Whose work do you really want to emulate? Who's your role model? There's nothing like flattery. People aren't very good at saying no when you ask them to do things. Ask them whether, you know, go and talk to them. Ask them about their work. Get to know them. The point is you also don't get anywhere without a strategic network, okay? And a strategic network is a network of people that are, that, you know, you need people to do your day job. You need people to do your family logistics, it's not those two buckets of networks. It's a third bucket of network that is about people that are really interesting, potentially powerful, that they're very influential in an academic subject area that is interesting for you, which obviously you are, Andrew, so I'm sure you sponsor loads of people, whether it's that they are very influential in an area of business that you are interested in, whether they write compellingly about, you know, whatever it might be. These are people that when you get to very senior levels in your career and all of a sudden the totally unexpected happens, you think, goodness me, I met Fred at that meeting. I, I went to that lecture because it really interested me. I went to that networking event that I'd really normally rather stick pins in my eyes than go to, but I did. I forced myself. I met that really interesting woman, you know, Fatima, who is at the top of this. And all of a sudden you've got somebody who can pick the phone up and say, Fatima, I don't know whether you remember me or Fred, I don't know whether you remember me, but we met him, blah, blah, blah. And I wonder whether you know somebody who can do this because we are now in this situation. Or could I come and talk to you because I'm, I really think you can help us think this through. You know, your strategic network not only changes your brain because you're thinking wider and bigger and even deeper. You know, you're going out your day job, you're coming out the weeds, you're looking up, you're looking at the big world. And that's what leaders do. Leaders look up, they don't look down. They see where the next impending storm's coming. They see where the next, you know, pot of gold is coming from because they look up. So one of the big things that organisations and young, but specifically young women and people of colour as well, uh, have got to do is they've got to be asked what is their career goal regularly and often and you have got to force yourself to think about where you want to be in three years time because if you don't have a goal you're not going to get there and nobody can help you okay and everybody else has got very very busy complex lives if you can't do do that lift moment where somebody says well well Georgina where do you want to be in three years time and say well actually I'd love to be there and I'm really interested in that and all of a sudden, that person goes away. And then we all get in senior positions, phone calls where we say, do you know somebody who can? And all of a sudden, Fred says, well, I was in with the lift with Georgina and blow me over. But she said she wanted to do that. I'll just put you in touch with Georgina. You know, so sponsor strategic network goals. Thinking back to the, the young Lorna at school who was shy, was passionate about art but had a bit of a sort of rod of steel in terms of she was going to do what she wanted to do. What would be 
your advice to her if you could whisper something in her ear for set her on her way enjoy it your difference is your superpower sort your finances out three golden rules good advice Lorna thanks so much for your time pleasure enjoyed this podcast to help others enjoy it too please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and don't forget to rate and review thank you